What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Welcome to Unfiltered. Here's tonight's headline. It's happened again. Twelve people are dead, four injured, three of whom are in intensive care after a man opened fire in the Virginia Beach Municipal Center on Friday. It marks the worst mass shooting of 2019 in America, and the breaking details are horrifying. Employees at the municipal building heard loud bangs, yelling, screaming, muffled gunshots. They pushed desks against the doors in their office, hid while hugging and holding each other as the gunshots continued. One employee told reporters it felt like hours. Virginia Beach Vice Mayor James Wood said the shooting is, quote, without a doubt, the most horrific thing that our city has experienced. This morning, President Trump made his first comments on the tragedy on Twitter. He said, spoke to Virginia Governor Ralph Northam last night and the mayor and vice mayor of Virginia Beach this morning to offer condolences to that great community. The federal government is there and will be for whatever they may need. God bless the families and all. Reactions from 2020 candidates have poured in as well and continued today. Most included calls for action. Cory Booker said we can and will pass common sense gun safety laws to end these tragedies. Kamala Harris, we cannot continue to stand idly by. Bernie Sanders, the days of the NRA controlling Congress and writing our gun laws must end. Congress must listen to the American people and pass gun safety legislation. Pete Buttigieg, it is unacceptable for America to remain the only developed country where this is routine. We must act. And Elizabeth Warren, how many lives will it take before Congress acts to end this crisis? Now, without a doubt, we have a problem in this country. There's a moral rot a breakdown of civil society, a sickness that we have not figured out how to address. Something is eating us alive from the inside. I don't pretend to have the answers. Politicians, by the way, they don't either. You may think you do. You may think the answer is fewer guns or more guns, more mental health resources, more research, more funding, or a combination of all of that. I don't know, but what I do know is politics is not going to solve this problem. So tonight, politics will have to wait. Other folks can go there. Tonight, we focus on the victims, the survivors in the hospital, the investigation, the unanswered questions, the community that's been torn apart. And this is what local law enforcement has asked us to do. Take a listen to the police chief, who I'll be speaking with shortly, in the emotional press conference this morning. The suspect, and this will be the only time we will announce his name, is Dwayne Craddock. We must keep the dignity and respect of the victims first and foremost. Um, and all the questions that I've received up to this point, I particularly want to thank the members of the media for understanding that and for keeping their dignity and their respect first and foremost in everything that you've been talking about. Uh, we will honor that request. Here are the names we should remember. Lakita C. Brown, Tara Welch Gallagher, Mary Louise Gale, Ryan Keith Cox, Robert Bobby Williams, Richard H. Nettleton, Michelle Missy Langer, Catherine A. Nixon, Joshua O'Hardy, Herbert Burt Snelling, Christopher Kelly Rapp, Alexander Mikhail Gusev. 
Okay, I start by going to Erica Hill with the latest. Erica, there was a presser from officials just this afternoon. What was revealed in that latest press conference? So, Essie, what we learned this afternoon, specifically, we learned about the weapons. From the ATF, we learned that there were two 45 caliber guns recovered inside at the crime scene behind me. In a search of the suspect's home, two more guns were found as well. Uh, of the four, we know that three, they are still continuing to investigate, but three of them do appear to be have, to have been purchased legally. The two that were found on the scene were purchased in 2016 and 2018. We don't know about a motive, and that could be difficult because, of course, the shooter was killed yesterday after engaging in what was referred to as a very long gun battle with the responding officers. The other thing I want to point out is that uh, all of the officials here have really talked about the fact that these four officers who arrived on scene, they credit with keeping the death toll down, actually, that it did not go higher. So there has been a lot of appreciation, a lot of praise for those four officers. We can tell you there was some talk about whether the shooter was a disgruntled employee, whether he'd been fired. The police chief making it very clear he had not been fired. In fact, he had a conversation with a co-worker earlier in the day who described him as a, a good person, and they wished each other to have a happy weekend. We should get a timeline tomorrow, Essie, from the police department, from the, when the shots rang out as to what happened next. That's been a big question. Of course, it's an ongoing investigation. The FBI taking over the evidence recovery at this point. And you talked about the focus on the victims. That's much of what we heard as well. The mayor, who I spoke with earlier today, said in that press conference he wants the city to be known as a community of love and support, that they are all about resilience uh, and that they will recover from this and that love and support and caring for one another is not something that they see happening for just the next few days, but that they will define themselves by that as a community, not by the horror and the tragedy that happened behind me. I see. That's powerful. Um, Erica, thanks so much for your reporting. Appreciate it. Now I'd like to bring in Virginia Beach Police Chief James Cervera. First, our condolences go out to your community. We are mourning with you, not for you. Um, I do want to keep our focus tight, as you requested. So what can you tell us about the victims that are still recovering in the hospital? The victims are, in fact, recovering in the hospital. Um, one is listed in... Uh, fair to stable condition. The other three are still listed in serious condition. So our, our thoughts are with the families. Yeah. Um, as far as the other victims, the deceased victims, we have honor guard officers from both the police and the fire department assigned to each family to make sure that we have direct liaison to those families. And Chief, we learned one police officer was wounded but reportedly saved by his <clears throat> bulletproof vest. How is he doing? He's doing well. I just came from his house. We had a great conversation. Um, you know, outwardly, cops are doing great. Inwardly, this is going to affect him and all the officers that responded to this scene. It's going to affect them for the rest of their life. We have to remember that. But they ran to the gunfire because that's what they do. Yeah, speak a little bit more, if you can, about the first responders, not just the cops, um, but first responders from, from hospitals, EMTs, et cetera. Our fire department and our EMT department work very close with the police department. We train very close together in situations such as this. As a matter of fact, we had a training event on March 30th. Um, it was a large-scale event, so they know that when they respond to the scene that there's a, a warm zone, a cold zone. Our officers know where to bring uh, casualties into one uh, repository area. Um, and I just have to say over and over again that the first cops in that building did a fantastic job in locating the suspect and in um, neutralizing the suspect. And then 
all the responding first responders, be it fire, be it EMTs, were all there to, to give the care to the wounded and as well as to the police officers. Again, they train together, we work together, we're a seamless emergency response system in our city. So in that, in that press conference that we played, you, you were very clear you were only going to mention the shooter's name once. I won't repeat it, and I appreciate your emphasis on that. But I do want to hear from you why you made that decision so that it's clear to our viewers and also colleagues in the media. Well, for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, I don't think he deserves to have his name read any other time than at one specific time so we could identify him. Secondly, I want to make sure that our city, that the rest of the country understands that we have 12 victims who did not make it uh, to the next day, they did not make it out of the building. I want other people to know we have other victims who are seriously injured. We have uh, a complete workforce in our city that's traumatized by this. We have first responders who went into harm's way immediately to, to take care of that situation. And I don't think this individual deserves to have his name read any more than once to identify who he is. Um, well, I, I appreciate you explaining that, um, Chief. Something else that struck me while listening to you earlier was you stressing that this was a prolonged shootout. You said it was not a traditional um, police officer shootout. What, what did you mean by that, just so I'm clear? Well, usually when, when an officer invo is involved in a shooting, what is commonly known as an OIS, there's a minimal number of shots that are fired. Uh, that's just the way it happens. It's also a very short period of time, seconds. Hmm. In this particular case, it was not a minimal number of shots that were fired. This individual immediately, actually he, quote, had to jump on one of our officers and open fire on that officer. That officer was able to take a tactical position. The other officers came and took tactical positions and that gunfight lasted for a much longer period of time. Multiple, multiple rounds were fired by the suspect and by our police officers. Um, remember this individual had extended magazines with extended rounds. Um, so I can, when I say it was a long-term uh, firefight is mm -hmm. really the word, that's what it was. It was not a bang, bang, and it's over. It right. continued to go on. There was movement by the suspect, movement by the officers mm -hmm. to get that tactical advantage to be able to neutralize them. I imagine whether you're law enforcement or a sanitation worker or a public school teacher, this attack on these city employees must feel like an attack on the city itself. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I'm wondering how you're sort of approaching this. Well, you know, uh, for a police agency, first and foremost, we believe in the sanctity of life, all lives in our city all of the people who visit our city. We, we truly believe that. That's why we are in this business. There is something to it when it happens within your, your community, let's say, within your family, folks that you see every day. You may not know them, you may not know their names, but somewhere along the line, you've passed, crossed paths with each other. There's something about a situation like this happening in a city building. Remember, these officers were only about 100 yards away from that building, so they immediately responded to it. But, but I do want to stress, um, we believe in the sanctity of life. We believe that no one should be, should be in a situation where their life is taken by another individual such as this. Chief Cervera, thank you so much for making time for us tonight and for sharing everything that you did. Um, I appreciate it. And I appreciate the fact that, that all media has really risen to the occasion for these victims. Thank you so much. Good. That makes me, that makes me happy. For one official in Virginia Beach, this tragedy is all too familiar, 
I'll speak to him next. This is a large scale crime scene. It's a horrific crime scene. And please understand, it takes not only a physical, emotional, and psychological toll on everyone who spent the night inside that particular building. We will turn our attention for this, for the remainder of today to, uh, to assign family liaison officers to support those families that uh, have been stricken by this, uh, by this horrible event. Uh, we are going to wrap our arms around those that serve with us here in Virginia Beach. That was the police chief and city manager, respectively, on the psychological toll of the tragedy out of Virginia Beach. Twelve people killed after a longtime city employee opened fire in the municipal building on Friday. Joining me now is Virginia Beach City Councilman Aaron Rouse. Um, first, Councilman, our condolences to you. I just want to first give you an opportunity to share your thoughts on this tragedy and its impact on your community. Well, uh, Ms. Cup, thank you for, for having this interview. You know, our our minds and uh, our hearts are with the families and the victim families of this tragedy, of this terrible ordeal, the worst day in Virginia Beach history. And we just want to make sure we, we surround those who need us most. And as a community, we are there for them and we come together. I'd also like to thank our first responders in a way, our brave men and women, um, courageously went into that building and mitigated some of the loss we had here today or the other day. Yeah. Uh, you're a recently elected city councilman, just, just elected last November, but I imagine this city is your family. Talk about how close you are to this community. You know, um, Ms. Cup, I grew up here. This is home for me. This is home yeah. for, for many of us. And I can tell you right now, I would not be standing here and I would not be the man today if it wasn't for our community, if it wasn't for the teachers, the first responders, if it wasn't for those special people within our community, angels, who make sure a, a young man like me growing up in poverty had the things that I need to be successful. So our community is very close. This is, this is our home. People might not know this, but you were, you were a safety with multiple teams in the NFL and you played football at Virginia Tech the scene of a, another tragic shooting back in, in 2007. And I heard you say to someone else, I can't believe this happened again. It, it really must have brought back some strong emotions for you. It has, and, and, it's, and it's brought back different emotions as well. The first emotions mm -hmm. I, I felt, you know, brought me back to that day in, in Virginia Tech and Blacksburg feeling helpless and not really trying to understand how could this happen. And then today, you know, as a councilman, the leader for our city, I felt a, a drive to do something, that I have the opportunity and, and the will to do something about this. And that's what we will do. You know, we, we will have a, a call to action that I believe starts with recognizing our humanity. Mm. You know, we don't want to politicize this any more than what it already has been. Our focus is, is for our community. And our focus is, is to understand that our humanity comes first before any structures we place on society. Mm. We cannot continue to politicize that. And here in Virginia Beach, we are a close-knit community. We are a unique community. We have, you know, an agriculture um, section of our, of our city to our tourist industry, to our military um, that we're so proud of. 
So we have people from all, all over the world, a great diverse community, and we're going to come together from this. We will, in our time, in our finest album, we will stand tall and we will define ourselves. We will define what this means for Virginia Beach going forward. Yeah, I believe that. Um, so how are you hoping to help your community heal through the aftermath of this devastating tragedy? What, what's your next What's your next focus today, tomorrow, and in the weeks and months to come? You know, like many other Virginia Tech Hokies and Virginians understand and know very well since that tragic day in 2007, is that through our times of mourning and grieving that we found strength in each other mm -hmm. every single day. You know, this is going to be a long process of healing for us. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't start with looking 10 years or a year down the road or months down the road. It starts with what we can do today. It starts with a simple smile to your neighbor, a hug, a handshake, you know, making friends, understanding that we are all in this thing called life together. And it matters how we treat one another. So, you know, our, our, our motto at Virginia Tech was UT Prozum, that I may serve. And that's what we have to do is serve each other. And that's what we're going to do here in Virginia Beach. That's an important message. I thank you for sharing it with me, Councilman Aaron Rouse. I'm so sorry that your community is dealing with this tragedy. Thanks for spending some time with me tonight. Thank you. The suspect in this unspeakable tragedy was a city employee, as were 11 of the 12 victims. I'll talk about workplace violence next. And a little later, it's back to Washington. The president had an interesting week. I'll talk about its impact on policy and on your wallets. We're back with our coverage out of Virginia Beach, where a longtime city employee walked into a municipal building and opened fire, killing 11 city employees and one contractor. According to officials, the shooter was a disgruntled employee, putting this attack in the category of workplace violence. You may remember earlier this year, a recently terminated worker opened fire at a manufacturing company in Aurora, Illinois, killing five workers. In September, less than a year ago, in Bakersfield, California, a man went on a killing spree at a trucking company, shooting his ex-wife and other co-workers in a targeted attack. There are intrinsic characteristics of these shootings and security challenges that come with keeping employees safe. So joining me now to discuss is workplace violence prevention expert Kathleen Bonzik. Kathleen, what's your initial reaction to this shooting based on the little information that we have. As always, the lack of respect for the dignity of human life that was exhibited yesterday continues to take one's breath away. Chilling, absolutely chilling. So we've learned that, um, at least according to police, this employee was not fired but clearly that he was disgruntled. Um, what, what do you make of that latest bit of information? The fact that he was a long-term employee, 15 years of duration in his position, and he was disgruntled, also the acquisition of the firearms and the multiple, the large number of ammunition, magazines, bullets, these are all potential red flags that we must look at and evaluate to help to prevent the next attack from occurring. You know, we have an epidemic right now in the United States. 
The Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, reports that homicide is currently the third leading cause of occupational death in our country. And OSHA also reports that two million Americans at least fall victim to workplace violence each mm -hmm. and every year. Staggering number. What's more disconcerting is that OSHA says that that is a severely underreported figure, mm. that not some, not a few, but many other cases of workplace violence go unreported each mm. and every year. Prevention is the only solution to this national ongoing tragedy. Well, so we don't want, you know, we don't want people to be paranoid about their coworkers, but we do want them to be observant. What are some of the red flags that we should be on the lookout for? You know, the FBI put out some very interesting and helpful studies that I think that can be used in the prevention of further episodes of workplace violence. In 2018, after the horrific workplace and school attacks at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, and Santa Fe High School in Texas, where both faculty and staff as well as students were wounded and murdered, the FBI put out a study which looked at the pre-attack behavior of active shooters from 2000 to 2013. Some of the red flags that the FBI encourages us to look for would be changes in behavior. Is this employee now who perhaps in the past took great pride in his or her work, now not getting along with other people, being sloppy, increased alcohol abuse, drug abuse, domestic violence, other acts of workplace violence, bullying, failure to get along with other people, these infatuation with prior attacks, an over-interest in prior workplace and school attacks are all red flags mm -hmm. and things that should be reported because <clears throat> the other problem that we have is that there is leakage of violent intent per the FBI and, and employees do not know sometimes yeah. what they're looking at and when they do, they don't yeah. know where to take that information so that management could potentially investigate and stop yeah. an incident from potentially manifesting. Kathleen, thanks so much for your insight. I appreciate it. Up next, the president often governs by emotion, but to what effect? Nancy Pelosi, John McCain, Russia, Ireland, even Meghan Markle all have managed to get under President Trump's skin in the past week or so. And as you might have noticed, that skin is decidedly thin. Of course, you remember his attacks on Pelosi tweeting out manipulated video to make her look drunk after she hurt his feelings before a meeting. Then news that the White House wanted the USS John McCain, a destroyer docked in Yokosaka, Japan, out of sight for Trump's state visit there because the late senator still apparently gets Trump all kinds of hot and bothered. Here was the president on Thursday. We'll probably be able to find out who did it. They thought they were doing me a favor because they know I am not a fan of John McCain. So I wasn't a fan of John McCain. I never will be. But certainly I couldn't care less whether or not there's a boat named after his father. Sure. 
On the same day, after admitting Russia helped to get him elected, Trump backpedaled when confronted with his own words 20 minutes later and touted his own great man theory for his win. No, Russia did not help me get elected. You know who got me elected? You know who got me elected? I got me elected. Trump is also butting heads with the Irish government after the prime minister declined to meet Trump at his golf course there. They'll meet at an airport instead. And what did Meghan Markle do? Well, when Trump was asked about her past criticism of him from 2016, he called her nasty. This behavior is not new, but it's also not normal. I didn't know men this pathologically insecure existed outside of cartoons. But here we are, a president whose fragile ego guides his every impulse. Worse, though, it often guides his policies. He likes to side with Putin and Kim Jong-un, two dictators, because they lavish praise on him. He blows up important policy negotiations on immigration or infrastructure spending when they don't go exactly how he wants. He wields tariffs on Mexico and China as weapons, weapons that would mostly hurt U.S. consumers. This isn't just silly or sad. It's dangerous. Governing by emotion and ego won't solve any of our very real problems. It just makes Trump feel better. Here to discuss our former communications director for Ted Cruz's 2016 campaign, Alice Stewart, and former White House communications director under President Obama, Jen Psaki. Alice, I know when I heard that the White House was trying to keep the USS John McCain out of Trump's eyeline in Japan, I thought... Wow, a person this fragile deserves our pity. What did you think? Similar. Hmm. Uh, I totally believe, without a doubt, he had no knowledge of this on the front end. Yeah. Uh Uh, I can totally see where someone, a low-level staffer, thought uh, he might say something. Or a high-level staffer. (laughs) Exactly. But once he knew about it, the response could have been much better. He could have, instead of, again, attacking John McCain, he could have said he was a war hero. We owe him a great uh, duty for his service to our country. But that's now he did it. The problem when we have a situation like this, when you have advanced staffers for the White House yeah. having to use their valuable time child-proofing a room so yes. the child doesn't stick their finger in the light socket, then we have a problem. I mean, Alice is exactly where I was going to go with you, Jen. Uh- I think it's safe to say Trump ad- Trump's advisors have figured out that both the best way to stay in the White House and also keep Trump um, from from, you know, getting in his own way is to mm-hmm. yes him to death. It's to keep, you know, only positive news in front of him, keep the boogeymen away and soothe him with compliments when he needs them. To Alice's point, I don't do that with my toddler. Right. Me neither. Right. <laughs> Me neither. They're treating him like an infant. Um, and, you know, that is obviously not how you treat the president of the United States. But there are lots of dangers to that as well. I mean, this is the White House I think the president has wanted for mm. some time that he's mm-hmm. built up every time someone is fired, he kicks them out. It's often because they disagree with him. There's right. pattern after pattern. But what happens then is he uh, creates a White House where everybody agrees with him, as you said, and it helps people rise who are appealing to his worst instincts. Yeah. I would say someone like Stephen Miller, who members of the Republican mm-hmm. Party far and wide are concerned about where he's taking immigration and other policies right. and the trade debate. Uh, but th- those are the type of people, people who appeal to the president's ego, who are mm-hmm. not going to second guess him and are going to tell him this is going to make you look better. That's well, what we're seeing. Alice, I, I, I want to be fair. This administration's gotten some stuff done. Um, right. You know, for me, where I sit on, on tax reform, on, on deregulation, it's possible, but it just blows my mind 
how much more Trump could be getting done if he would just check his ego to the side. I mean, as a Republican strategist, that must frustrate you. Uh, yes. And I will also <laughs> add to that list of things he has successfully accomplished that I was hoping to get done, the Supreme Court and, and filling the judicial positions we have with people that are strict, const- people that are yeah. adhere to the <clears throat> judicial constitution. That being said, there are different governing styles, and we've all worked for different people. There's yeah. the governing style where you surround yourself with people that will give you good advice, give you sound advice, tell you to stop when you need stopping, and, and give you uh, the, the information that you don't know. One person I used to work for used to always say, I don't know what I don't know, right. so please tell me. And then there are those that surround themselves in an echo chamber where everyone is saying yes, no one is willing to step forward and give you valuable information that you need. And unfortunately, that type of governing style or leadership style is where we are right now. Yeah. And, and it, that's the way he prefers it because it helps his ego. Unfortunately, it doesn't necessarily help get things done. Well, Jen, this seems particularly problematic when it comes to our allies and mm-hmm. partners abroad. Um, Trump tweeting, for example, that, you know, those North Korean missile tests weren't that big mm-hmm. a deal while he's in Japan. Right. Um, you know, I, 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 you work for the State Department. Mm-hmm. How much more difficult does that make life for our diplomats? When, you know, they're constantly lurching from Mm -hmm. one presidential insecurity and outburst to the next. Incredibly difficult. And I think for a couple of reasons. Uh, One is that many of our allies uh, and, and certainly foes, they're sitting around thinking, okay, we can survive this maybe for 18 more months. Yeah. They're not sure if they can survive it for five more years because they don't know that the United States is a reliable partner. And if you're a diplomat and you're an ambassador and you're sitting in a capital, that's really hard. Yeah. You lose your power. You, you lose the power of the United States to have a seat at the table. Mm. Uh, but I will tell you from talking, still talking to a lot of people who are serving overseas, the best thing that can happen for them is for Donald Trump not to care about their issue. Then they can go about their uh, issue and quietly. They can <laughs> quietly pursue the United States business. If if it's not on the front of the newspaper, oh, they just continue to serve on behalf of the United States. So they don't, nobody wants him to, to kind of take to get notice. too involved. That's not normal oh, either. That's terrible. Alice Storch and Saki, thanks so much for joining Thank me you. tonight. Thank I appreciate you. it. Okay, here's what I know. Running on this guy is nuts didn't work for anybody in 2016. But what about this guy is being impeached? What does history tell us about that? Let's find out next. This week in impeachment watch, at least 51 House Democrats, by our count, are calling for Congress to begin impeachment proceedings. Speaker Nancy Pelosi earlier today got an earful from Democrats at the California Democratic Convention. Listen. In the United States of America, no one is above the law, not even the president of the United States. She didn't use the word, but the crowd was very clear, chanting impeach during her remarks. But by all accounts, the speaker is standing firm, maintaining impeachment will only play into President Trump's hands. House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler, a frequent impeachment floater, is also pumping the brakes, saying just yesterday, you cannot impeach a president if the American people will not support it. So as pundits and politicians in Washington grapple with should we or shouldn't we impeach, I want to go to the history books. What does history say about impeachment proceedings and should that matter? 
I've got the perfect people to discuss this with me. Alan Lickman is a professor at American University who has correctly predicted nine straight presidential election winners all the way back to 1984. Also with me is CNN presidential historian Doug Brinkley. Um, let me start with you, Alan. You predicted Trump would win in 2016. Many did not. And you say the same thing might happen in 2020 if Democrats don't start taking on Trump where it matters. How does impeachment fit into that? Real simple. Let me say I don't believe that impeachment should be decided on political expediency. But this mm. is a case where an impeachment inquiry is right morally and constitutionally and politically. The Democrats are making the same mistake they made in 2016. And that is they're reading the polls, they're listening to the conventional wisdom and saying, oh, we can beat this guy. Wrong. My keys to the White House that, as you indicated, have successfully predicted elections since 1984 indicate yeah. that elections are referenda on the strength and performance of the party holding the White House. And it takes six keys to count out Trump. Right now, he's down only three. Mm. But an impeachment inquiry would nail down a fourth key, the scandal key. And it doesn't mm. depend on what the Republicans do. It's the public revelations from the inquiry, the mm. accusations, and then the public trial. It was the public revelations that drove Richard yeah. Nixon down from 67 to 25 percent in his approval. Yeah. Before I go to Nixon, I want to go to more recent history. Doug, Republicans did suffer in the midterms during the Clinton impeachment, but more importantly, impeachment made Clinton more popular. His approval rating spiked to the highest of his entire presidency, 73 percent. Do you worry Democrats risk making Trump, you know, a martyr or a hero going into 2020? Well, that is clearly the worry of Speaker Pelosi. Uh, if we go back to 1998, uh, Ken Starr gave up 11 reasons, just served them up on a plate to Congress of, um, of, of possible reasons to impeach. Mueller's been cagier, uh, a little bit more down the middle. But I think this past week when he spoke, uh, you had to read the tea leaves, um, and he was a bit cryptic. But he was yeah. really telling Congress, do your job and start uh, moving impeachment forward. So you see the impeachment um, movement gaining um, sponsors in the Democratic Party. But if you don't have Nancy Pelosi on board, uh, it's, it, it could run out of gas soon. And you might have people talking about censor, the Senate had censored mm -hmm. Joe McCarthy in 1954, but a president hasn't been censored since 1834 with Andrew Jackson. And a censor doesn't have the, the definitive uh, stamp of, of disapproval that impeachment does. So I think it's gaining momentum now, but if Pelosi refuses, she's so powerful, it may not, it may end up being the Democrats' punt on that idea. Well, Alan, what do you think about, so yeah, what do you think yeah. about censoring as sort of the, I don't know, middle ground? All Trump cares about is consequences. Censuring uh, subpoenas, court decisions will make no difference. I have a message mm. for Nancy Pelosi. History celebrated the Catherine the Great. It would not have celebrated Catherine the Cautious. And <laughs> Pelosi and the Democrats are completely misreading the Clinton example. Mm. First of all, most critically, the charges against Donald Trump are infinitely more serious than covering up a private consensual affair. They cut to the heart of our democracy. As Mueller said, they cut to the integrity of our judicial system and our national security. Moreover, sure, Republicans lost a few seats in the House, but they kept the House, and guess what they yeah. won? The big
biggest prize in America, yeah. the presidency, by 537 votes in Florida, when a right. quarter of the voters said the scandal was very important in their decision making. Yeah. So, Doug, only 19 percent of Americans thought Nixon should be removed from office a month after the Senate Watergate hearings, even after the Saturday night massacre, support for impeachment and removing Nixon from office ever only rose to 38 percent. Should Democrats, I don't know, bolster their um, optimism for impeachment if our public polling approaches similar numbers? Yeah, I think polling's going to matter a lot. But remember, it's really all about television. And as much as we do on CNN to cover things, it's one thing if it's everybody's covering an impeachment hearing and you don't know what's going to be unearthed. Nobody expected John Dean uh, to come forward. Nobody realized that the mm. White House was even being, t uh, Nixon was having a taping system. So the by impeaching Trump, you would find a lot of new information that mm. could be very damnable in the end. But remember, Bill Clinton may have rose and surprised people after being impeached. But in 2000, Al Gore didn't want to be seen in a photo frame with Bill Clinton. He ran That's for president, right. distancing himself. We see that as a mistake That's now. Right. but. There is a cost you pay. Alan, Doug, this was a great conversation. Uh, a lot to think about. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we'll be right back. Well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but for all you never-Trumpers out there, your savior isn't coming. Maryland Governor Larry Hogan told the Washington Post this afternoon he will not be a candidate for president in 2020. The popular Republican governor had been mulling a run, visiting early voting states like New Hampshire and meeting with key players. Proponents of his bid like to point to the fact that Hogan's father, Larry Sr., was the first Republican member of the House Judiciary Committee to call for Nixon's impeachment. It'll have to remain a pipe dream, though. Hogan says he made a commitment to the people of Maryland and his family. He also recently beat cancer for a second time. Never Trumpers hoping for someone to take on Trump got another blow yesterday when Governor John Kasich, whose impressive showing in the 2016 Republican primary proved he could easily become president of Ohio, announced he does not see a path for him in 2020. Well, what about disenchanted Republicans' new savior, Congressman Justin Amash? Remember, he fired off that punishing series of tweets admonishing his Republican colleagues for failing to hold Trump accountable in the wake of the Mueller report. So now he gets asked about running in 2020. He says that's not something he's thought about. He's just, quote, focused on defending the Constitution. Hey, you're in luck. That's literally the job. Maybe Dallas Mavericks owner and Shark Tank boss Mark Cuban will save the day. He told The New York Daily News in March that he was seriously considering a third party run. Wouldn't be the first time Cuban flirted with the notion. Back in 2016, a group including Mitt Romney and Rick Wilson tried to draft Cuban to take on Trump. Maybe he'll reconsider this time. If not, there's always Bill Weld, former Massachusetts governor and one-time vice presidential candidate on the 2016 Libertarian ticket. In case you didn't notice, he is running as a Republican against Donald Trump. So, never Trumpers, there's still... No chance President Trump will be primaried out of office. Okay, before I go, a quick programming note. We have a big lineup of 2020 presidential town halls tomorrow night. Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton at 6, Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan at 7, and California Congressman Eric Swalwell at 8. They're live from CNN Center in Atlanta. That's tomorrow, Sunday night, only on CNN. The Van Jones Show is next. Stick around. When you work, you work next level. 
And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.